Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to um, Redemption Church this morning. Um, glad that you guys are here with us. Um, this morning, we are continuing in our series through the book of Acts. At the beginning of Acts, um, Jesus makes the statement to his disciples that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we are in Acts chapter 19 this morning, which is the part of Acts where the gospel is literally going to the ends of the earth. Um, so that's what we'll be talking about in just a few minutes, Acts chapter 19. Uh, but before we get there, um, let's pray together for a second. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be together this morning, to worship together, to pray together, to hear from your word. Holy Father, to meet you in this place. God, I, I recognize that as I stand on this stage this morning that my words are of little importance, but God, your words are of utmost importance, and so I pray that we would hear from you and that we would hear your words, that you would use me simply as an instrument of the gospel of grace, of your love. Holy Father, through what happens in this place and through uh, the next few minutes as I talk through Acts chapter 19 and, and some uh, implications and applications that result from that. I pray that through it all, Jesus would be glorified and lifted high, and that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus. God, I ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of hearing a song so many times that you stopped liking the song because you heard it over and over and over? Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, for instance, there's this band out there called Florida Georgia Line, and I hate any song by Florida Georgia Line. That has nothing to do with the point I'm making. I just want you to know I don't like that band. <laughs> There's another song out there right now that um, my wife and my kids and I, we keep hearing every time we turn around. It's on a Target commercial, um, and it's called The Middle by Marin Norris and Zed. Does anybody, has anybody heard the song? Right, I cannot stand to hear that song anymore. Neither can my family. We're together. We're united on that. Um, but when you listen to something over and over, when you hear something over and over, it sort of sometimes has the effect of you don't want to hear it again or you become numb to it or you don't know why we have to continue talking about something over and over and over. And our topic this morning from Max chapter 19, I think I run that risk just a little bit because I talked about the subject just two weeks ago in Acts chapter 7. Teen. But we're going, to, uh, uh, we're going to address it again this morning because I think it's part of the point of Acts chapter 19, and that is um, the topic of idolatry. And so you may be tired of hearing it. You certainly may be tired of hearing me talk about idolatry, but I'm going to ask you to just hang in there with me for a little bit this morning and hear what I have to say, even if it overlaps with what we talked about just a couple of weeks ago. Acts chapter 19 is an incredibly intriguing chapter to me. At the end of Acts chapter 19, there's this scene in Ephesus where there's this giant riot and there's 25,000 people screaming about how great Artemis is in reaction to what Paul and other people have been doing in Ephesus. It's the result of of Paul directly confronting the idols of a culture and the idols of people's hearts in Ephesus. There's this giant stadium where all these people are in there yelling about it. And, and, and we'll get more to that in a second. I'm absolutely fascinated by it. But I'm also fascinated by some things that probably happened in Ephesus that Luke doesn't really record. By the time that Paul gets to Ephesus, by the time we get to chapter 19, Paul has probably already written the book of Galatians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. During his time in Ephesus, there is some disagreement over this, but he probably spends some time in prison in Ephesus because he's there probably about three years. And while he's in prison here, it may be that he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and 1st Corinthians. So there's a lot going on with Paul in Ephesus while he's there. Ephesus was a, a Greek town on the west coast of modern-day Turkey, if you can think about that area of the world. Uh, in Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's 
like four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. And so we find Paul here in Ephesus doing what Paul does. He's going to the synagogues and pointing out that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament has promised. He's going to the pagan culture and saying, your idols are pointless. It's insane for you to be worshiping your idols. It doesn't make sense. That's baseless. And overall, there's a lot of trouble that gets stirred up because Paul is there. That happens repeatedly in this section of Acts. Over and over and over, everywhere Paul goes, he gets in trouble because of what he's saying and what he's talking about. He's constantly on the move. But verse 10 of Acts chapter 19 says this, All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, Asia here probably refers to a certain part of Turkey, or modern-day Turkey. But because Paul was there, because the people that were with Paul were there, because the church was active, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's pretty amazing. The gospel is going to the ends of the earth. So we're going to pick up in verse uh, 11 and read through verse 20 right now. So if you want to follow along with me. And this is what it says. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There's some crazy stuff that's happening in that short little section of Acts chapter 19. Um, there's extraordinary miracles are being done. Um, Paul and the people that are with him are directly confronting the dark forces, the evil forces of this world, and handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul had worn were being used to heal people and drive out spirits. That's, that's just weird. It doesn't ha we, we don't see that, right? And there's this group of, I don't know what else to call them other than Ghostbusters, that try to imitate Paul and use the name of Jesus to cast out a demon. And in a, an extraordinary scene, the demons respond and say, Jesus I know and Paul I've heard of, but you, who are you? And then the guy that's possessed jumps on them and literally beats their clothes off. Ben made the point earlier that if you're in a fight and your clothes get beaten off, you've lost. And then these people who are some sort of magicians, uh, some sort of spells and incantations that they practiced, whatever that is, some of them become believers, and so they come and they burn these things that, that hold their spells and incantations and all this other stuff, and it says um, an amount there, but what that translates to in modern dollars for us would be about $6 million worth of books and spells and things that they're burning. And it's all because Paul goes into this culture, the people that are with him go into this town, they proclaim Jesus, they refute the dark forces of the world, they show them the insufficiency of their idols and what they believe in, and instead point them to Jesus. And all these things are happening. And so if we pick up again in verse 21 and read through the end, we see this. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia 
and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, the silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be discounted as nothing. That she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. I find this scene fascinating. There are all these people in Ephesus who are making money by building shrines, by making these little, um, little silver statues of Artemis, other statues as well. Greek mythology, just so you know, Artemis was the daughter of Zeus and the goddess of the hunt and wild animals and some other things. Her Roman equivalent is uh, Diana, like I said, her, uh, or, or this huge temple was in Ephesus, um, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And these people, led by Demetrius, are making money off of the worship of Artemis. And so Demetrius speaks up and says, because of what Paul is preaching, and what's interesting about Acts chapter 19 is we don't hear Paul preach at all in Acts chapter 19. We hear about what's happening around Paul. What we hear is Demetrius say, Paul is saying, gods made with hands are not gods. So we know that whatever Paul is saying in Ephesus, that's part of it. And so Demetrius recounts this, leads this group, says they're losing money. All because Paul is pointing out that their idol worship is baseless and pointless and insane. And the truth that Jesus is the only person to be worshipped has completely turned this city on its head. Such that verse 27 says this, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship, monetarily, socially, culturally, religiously, whatever, you want, whatever way you want to look at it, their, life, their way of life was jeopardized and turned upside down because Paul and the people with him were pointing people to Jesus. 
And Demetrius whips everybody into a frenzy and those with him, and they go into the amphitheater there in Ephesus. That amphitheater, uh, the ruins still exist. It would have held about 25,000 people. And for two hours at one point, they're screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I, I can't even imagine. A few years ago, I think I've told you guys this story at some point in the past, I was in New Orleans when LSU won the national championship and I was watching the game on TV um, and when it was clear that LSU was going to win, uh, the people that were with me and I, we, we ran out to the French Quarter to sort of see what the celebration was going to look like, just to, just to see. And everybody that was in the Superdome, which holds thousands and thousands of people, emptied out onto Bourbon Street in New Orleans. And for hours, people were screaming about LSU being the national champions. It's the closest thing I can get in my mind to what's happening here. And, and the whole situation in Ephesus is out of control. It's crazy. And so some town political leaders who are at risk of losing their positions of power show up and try to quiet the crowd and, and get them out. And all because Paul is in Ephesus pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and showing how their idols are pointless. Over and over in the book of Acts, over and over, Paul goes to the synagogues and the towns that he goes to and points to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He goes to the pagan culture and he points out how worthless their idols are. It happens in Thessalonica. It happens in Corinth. It happens in Athens. It's happening here in Ephesus again. And the town is turned upside down because of those two simple truths. And it would be easy for us to look at what happens in Ephesus and other places in Acts where the same thing occurs and think that this passage holds nothing for us. Like I said, when you read through Acts chapter 19, you're just hearing about things that happened. You're not hearing a direct sermon or direct teaching about something. And it would be easy for us to think that this doesn't apply to us, that it's an unnecessary topic. Also, because we don't bow down to real idols. We don't go to the temple of Artemis. We don't go to the temple of a mythological god. But it's an incredibly important topic for us to continue to, to, to take in and to think about and to have our minds changed about, especially as it relates to us and idolatry and the gospel and idolatry. I'll give you three reasons why. Three reasons why it's incredibly important to pay attention to what Paul has to say about idols. Number one, idolatry is a warning that flows throughout Scripture, or another way to put it, there are warnings about idolatry that are throughout Scripture. From the beginning of Scripture to the end, the most common warning about sin in Scripture is about idolatry. It's not about lying or gossiping or stealing or adultery or murder. The most common warning is about idolatry. The very first of the Ten Commandments is this, you shall have no other gods before me. And many people have said that you can't break any other commandment without breaking that one as well. Jesus summed it up a little different. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. 1 John 5, 21, John writes... This book, and my favorite verse is the very last verse of that scripture, and I don't know why, but at the end, John says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. The reality is, and what we have to grasp, is that idolatry is an ever-present reality in our lives that serves to distract us from the worship of the true God. And when our mind is set on anything more than God, when anything is valued more than God in our lives, if anything is more desired than God, when we seek anything more than God, when we love anything more than God, then what we're committing is what the Puritan pastors called soul idolatry. We're giving worship and we're giving significance to something other than God who is due all of our 
worship. Number two, the second reason we need to pay attention to what Paul has to say about idolatry. Idolatry is not just a pagan issue. It is not just an Old Testament or Jewish issue. It is a human issue. And here's what I mean by that. It's not that a piece of wood or silver statue can do anything bad to us. But it is that we do something awful to ourselves when we place adoration and significance and attention and worship on something that doesn't deserve it. When it comes to idolatry, the danger is not in an item, the danger is in us. And here's why. I think scripture is very clear that humans were designed and created to have a relationship with God and to worship our heavenly father. And when we worship idols, whether they be overt idols like what you see in the book of Acts, or whether they be covert idols, which is what would be more uh, significant to us, things that we seek to obtain and value more than God, soul idols, we therefore behave in ways that are less than fully human and less than fully image-bearing. When we worship anything other than God, we're being less than fully human because God created us to worship him. We have to realize that one of the primary laws of the human life is that you become like what you worship. You reflect what you worship. N.T. Wright says it this way, those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it, increasingly treat other people as creditors or debtors or partners or customers rather than as human Beings, those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sexual objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. Number three. The third reason we desperately need to pay attention to Paul's warnings about idolatry. And this is going to seem academic for a second, but it's not intended to be. I, I want us to just open our eyes a little bit. And it's this, idolatry is inherent to Western culture. There's this um, narrative that says we in the U.S. live in a Christian nation, and there are certainly some Judeo-Christian values and morals that have defined our society up to a certain point. But I think we can't deny the fact, and I'm going to try to convince you of this, that idolatry is inherent to Western culture. And here's what I mean by that. Whether we realize it or not, Western culture as a whole is not built on the worship of Jesus. It's built on something else. Western culture... Uh, for a large part, has its genesis in the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is, um, is this philosophical movement that started in Europe around the 15th or 16th century, depending on who you ask. But the Enlightenment saw reason and authority and rationality as the primary source of legitimacy and knowledge and authority in life. The scientific method played a big role in this. And this reliance on reason and rationality led to the valuing of ideals, listen to this, like liberty and progress and tolerance and cost constitutional governments and separation of church and state. That sounds a little bit like America. And the Enlightenment was all about establishing humans and people as the primary driving forces in the world. And part of what led to the Enlightenment being um, fully, uh, dis not fully discovered, but, but fully fleshed out. Part of the underpinning of the Enlightenment is a rediscovery of Greek philosophical thought, specifically Epicureanism. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about Acts chapter 17. Paul is in the marketplace in Athens and he's talking about idols, and he's talking to the Epicurean philosophers, and he's talking to the Stoics. One of the core tenets of Epicurean life is that if God exists, or the gods exist, 
then they are foreign and not involved with everyday life. And when Paul is in Athens, he says, God is not far from you at all. It's a, it's a direct statement against the Epicurean way of thinking. Greek philosophical thought, in some ways, is a reaction to the mythology that there are multiple gods who control every area of life. It's a reaction to paganism. When Paul is in Athens, he attacks two very specific things as he's pointing to Jesus. He attacks paganism and idol worship, and he attacks Greek philosophical thought, and instead points to Jesus. Right, this philosophy, specifically that of the Epicureans, is sort of an ancestor to modern atheism and agnosticism and deism and humanism and some of these other ways of thinking. But in Acts, over and over, Paul attacks the idea of paganism, goes after it, shows how it's pointless, and goes after Greek philosophical thought, specifically like he did in Acts chapter, C, Acts chapter 17, and says, you guys have it wrong. You're looking for something, you have signposts to something, but you haven't ended up where you need to end up at Jesus. So over and over, Paul is confronting idols, he's confronting these philosophical thoughts, and it's almost like Paul has something to say about modern Western society. Here's the result of a society that is functionally built on the fact that God is not involved in our life and we set the course. We're in charge. We make it happen. We, we know that that's the, the mythology of the U.S. Because we believe in things like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, getting things done, taking over, being in control, carving an existence for yourself out of nothing, making it happen. Being pragmatic, that's the mythology of the West. Those are the stories that our society loves. But the result of a society that largely builds itself upon what humans can accomplish, what we can do on our own, the result of that thought is a society and culture that worships itself. And Paul... And Acts chapter 17 and 18 and 19 has something to say about the insanity of worshiping anything other than the almighty God of the universe. Because people were made to worship something. Paganism gets it wrong and says worship these gods, worship these things that can give you something. And in the West we've gotten it wrong Because we worship things as well. We commit soul idolatry. And we pursue things other than God and give significance to, God, significance to things other than Christ all the time. The reason we do that, I've said it over and over, is that people were made to worship something. And when God is not the one being worshipped, idols will rush in like water to an empty stream bed after a rain to take the place of God. Humans were made to worship the almighty God of the universe that Paul was pointing people to. And unfortunately in the West, part of the underpinning of our society is that we don't need God. We can do this ourselves. Now, what that results in, like I said, is a society that worships itself. It's a society that replaces the worship of God with the worship of other things, three of which are the most significant that I think we see in our society are power and money and sex. We worship money and stuff, right? Just think about how much debt people will go into to, just to have a comfortable life and to have what they think they need. Look at the advertising that you see on TV and hear on the radio. Buy this car, take this vacation, get this thing, and you'll be happy. Look at the way that people sacrifice themselves and their families for their jobs. It's idolatry. It's the worship of mammon. It's the worship of money personified as a deity. We, we worship power. This, was, this is a hard one. But 
just look at what's going on in the political realm today in our world. We have people who are in positions of power who will say and defend the unthinkable in order to maintain a position of power in society. And I don't intend to step on anybody's toes when I say this, but we have a president that will say and do anything, no matter how morally bankrupt, in order to maintain a powerful base. Our major major Christian leaders have rallied behind political parties that exist only to stay in power, not realizing that they've given up their God-given tasks to speak truth to power and to be a prophetic voice to our culture. And instead, they're groveling for scraps because we worship power. We worship sex. How many children, how many children have been literally sacrificed at the altar of sex, literally killed? How many marriages ruined from adultery? How many children abused? How many women harassed and abused? Right, Part of the reality of the Me Too movement, if it doesn't expose anything else, it should expose that our society has a seriously warped understanding of, of sex. And, and we worship it in a way that is dishonoring to God and harmful to others. Right, And if I take this a step further and talk about Christian culture specifically, look at what the church has to fight internally. The prosperity gospel worships money. Christian nationalism worships power. Theological liberalism in a very real sense exists to justify the unthinkable at times. And if we bring this home to the south where we are located, Christianity has become just an idol to secure a happy marriage, a good job, a successful career, well-behaved children, along with eternal life. Russell Moore says that this kind of thinking about Christianity doesn't have a Galilean accent at all, but rather the studied clip of a telemarketer. It's not real. It's a Christianity that's selling you something rather than calling you to Jesus in repentance and faith. Right? I, I hope that I have convinced you that what Paul has to say about idolatry is important. I hope that I have convinced you that over and over in Acts chapter 17 and 18 and 19 and on as Paul attacks paganism and, and shows how it's baseless and pointless as Paul talks about these philosophical things that aren't true of Christianity. I hope that I have convinced you that it's important to hear what Paul is saying. Because it would be a drastic mistake for us to hear the words of Paul, idols built by hands are no gods at all. Demetrius heard that message and he didn't like it. But he knew exactly what Paul was saying. Idols built by hands are no gods at all. And it would be a mistake for us to hear those words and think that they don't directly apply to us. Because they do in ways that we may have never even grasped. So where does all of that leave us this morning? Where does all of my crazy rambling up here on stage leave us this morning? Well, I hope it leaves us with this. I hope that it leaves us with a call to recognize and to destroy our idols and to turn to Jesus instead. What you see happening in Acts chapter 19 is a realization in Ephesus, whether they like it or not, that something's wrong with idolatry and, and, and the way they're living their lives. What you see in Ephesus is Paul and his companions confronting the dark forces of the world and those people destroying their idols. Because if we do not destroy them through the power of the Holy Spirit, if we do not destroy our idols through the power of the Holy Spirit, if we do not understand that Christ won an incredible victory on the cross 
over the idols of our heart, then we're missing part of the gospel. If we don't destroy our idols, then we're going to end up in a situation to where our idols are beating our clothes off of us, wounding us and leaving us naked. Jesus died and rose from the dead to defeat our idols. So what are we to do? We're to destroy our idols. There's this story in 2 Kings 22 and 23 in the Old Testament. It's also contained in Chronicles as well, or an account of it is in Chronicles. And the book Zephaniah is actually written to the same situation, if you've never read that minor prophet, that book. But it's the story of King Josiah. Josiah became a king of Judah, the southern nation of Israel, when he was eight years old. At some point in his 20s, he sends some people into the temple to repair the temple and to make some things right in the temple. And while they're in the temple, Josiah, or while they're in the temple, a priest finds the book of the law. The, a priest finds the first five books of the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament. Now that's astounding because that means it had been lost. And that they had not been paying attention to it. But a a priest finds the book of the law, and so they come and tell Josiah, hey, we found this book in the temple. And And so they start reading it. And as they read it, as Josiah reads, and as the priests read it, they come to realize that for years and years prior, God's people in Judah had not had not undertaken the covenant that God had made with them seriously and had not been celebrating the Passover correctly. When they had celebrated it at all, they had not done it properly. And so for years and years prior to them finding the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, God's people had ignored the covenant that God had made with them and they had failed to celebrate God's deliverance of them. From the bondage of Egypt. And so what does Josiah do? In chapter 23 of 2 Kings, Josiah gathers everybody together and they read the entire first five books of the Old Testament. And Josiah recommits his people to the covenant of God. And then he goes out and sends people out all over Judah to grab idols, to burn them, to grind them to dust to spread them in the wind, and to destroy anything related to the idols that they had been worshiping. And so, in response to being reminded of God's deliverance from the bondage of Egypt, in response to recommitting themselves to the covenant of God, they go out and they destroy their idols. In response to God's deliverance of them, they go out and destroy their idols. It would be wise for us to recognize and to destroy our idols before they destroy us. Because that's where it leads. When we worship anything other than God, when you put value and significance in anything other than the almighty creator of the universe, when we seek maybe in just little ways anything more than we seek Jesus, our idols will destroy us. And again, it's not that we're going to literally bow down at altars to idols. I get that. But when we give those things significance... They begin to change us, however small. They begin to change the way we think about other people. They begin to change the way we think about what God has for us. We begin to be willing to sin to get what we want. Because we were made to worship God. We're created for that purpose. And when we worship anything else, we're becoming less than human. We're becoming less than image bearing, less than what God has for us, and it will change us and it will destroy us. In Isaiah 30:22, it 
God says this to his people as he's promising them a future where he makes everything right again. He says this, Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he won that victory. Because of Jesus, we can say to our idols, be gone. I beg of you, let's say to our idols, be gone. Because Jesus won that victory for us. Because of what Jesus did, we can do that. We can come to the place where we worship God above all else. We can come to the place where we are fully what God intended us to be as we set ourselves on God as the most important thing in our lives. Seeking after God and worshiping Him fully will not lead to our destruction. The worship of anything else will absolutely hurt you and hurt those around you. So I beg of you, let's turn to God in prayer. Let's turn to Jesus in prayer and let's say to our idols, be gone. And let's pursue Jesus wholeheartedly as we return to him in prayer, in repentance, and in faith. We're going to enter into a time of response. Um, during this time of response, the band's going to come back up and uh, lead us in some songs and give us an opportunity to worship through singing. We have an opportunity to worship through giving. Uh, that's what giving is. It's, it's a continuation of worship. There's a giving basket in the back. Um, you also have an opportunity to stay where you are, to reflect, to pray. If the Holy Spirit has led, uh, led you to understand that there is something in your life that you're pursuing more than God himself, I would encourage you to deal with that even now through prayer and repentance. You also have an opportunity to come and take communion. We take communion every Sunday at Redemption as a way to remember what Christ has done for us and to proclaim that we believe it. That's what scripture says we're doing. We're remembering Christ's work on our behalf. We're proclaiming that the gospel is true and that we believe it. So I would invite you to come down these aisles out here on the outside, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. And so remember the blood of Christ that was shed for us and the body of Christ that was broken for us, knowing that we're doing that to say we believe this. We're proclaiming that it's true, that it's real. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll continue on with that. Holy Father, thank you for this reminder from your word. Thank you for this section of the book of Acts. Thank you for Acts chapter 19 to where we see what happens when the gospel goes into a culture, points out the fallacy of anything other than a reliance and a dependence on you. Holy Father, I pray that you would bring us to yourself even now. And as we continue to respond in worship, that Jesus would continue to be made much of that Jesus would be held high and that we would be drawn to you because of Christ and because of Christ alone. Holy Father, I ask all this in the precious name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen.
All right, just a couple of, a um, few quick announcements. You guys can have a seat just for a second if you want to. Um, although I am going to ask you to stand back up in a second. But um, number one, Redemption Youth happens every Sunday morning at 9.30. Next week, that's...